Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have John Ward as our guest to talk about his new book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. John is the Chief National Correspondent at Yahoo News. John grew up in evangelical Christian circles and has spent the last two decades covering politics, government, culture, and the nature of power. In this book, John explores how the evangelical church lost its witness and how it can regain it by laying aside grasps for power to serve with Christ-like love. So I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Scott um, sent me a message and said, you have to read this book and we have to get John on the podcast. So I know Scott's excited to have this interview. Well, thanks, John, for being with us and uh, interrupting your uh, far more significant schedule than we have dealing with major politics in the United States. But uh, I I couldn't put your book down. My wife is reading it now. She's loving it. And I just I want to say thanks for the book, and uh, we'd like to discuss it. So thanks for being well, on. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be here and uh there's definitely no imbalance in the importance of our schedules in my opinion (laughs) oh yeah well well we'll see um john uh, i'm uh right now uh working with a former student on the deconstructors in american evangelicalism and um one of the we got access to a study of deconstruction by a publisher that I don't think they've given to anybody else. But it it proved that uh, the deconstructors, the people who will use that language, do not walk away from the faith hardly at all. They stay in the faith, but they reconfigure their faith. And I think your book is a perfect example of what a lot of these people are talking about. And so I, I have kind of a simple question uh, maybe you don't use that term deconstruction for yourself, but let me cheat and use it for it and ask two questions. Uh, in the deconstruction process that you went through as you resolved your Christian faith, what did you lose and what did you not lose? Interesting that you said not lose rather than gain. Yeah. Any reason for that? Uh No. Uh, the title of the project we're working on is called "Losing Your Religion But Not Losing Jesus." That's yeah. that's probably the only reason. That's probably why. Yeah. Well, um, I like how you just smuggled in the term into the into the conversation. It just didn't even allow me to <laughs> talk to the. You know, so, so this has come up uh, a couple uh, several times. Um, Curtis Chang. Uh, said the same thing that you've said, which is that he thinks this is a classic deconstruction story. I, I do tend to kind of avoid it in everyday conversation because I think it has a stigma. I think it often carries um, associations of just leaving the faith altogether. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, I, I try to stay away from words that have lots of baggage, but Sounds like your project is fascinating. What did I lose? I was, I would, I mean, there's a lot to that, but I would say one of the things I lost 
uh, was a very fear-oriented and fear-based worldview. Um, there's a lot about the way I was raised and conservative religion that I don't think a lot of it is intentional, but the way it is taught and transmuted to the younger generations, the architecture of it just kind of really does orient itself around fear. And I think, um, I think hell is part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a, a stress on uh, sort of saying a prayer to avoid going to a terrible place is kind of one of the building blocks of that. And then I also think the hermeneutic of fundamentalism, of how it reads the scriptures, the holy book, also built plays into this fear Um and my mind's going a couple of different directions on this, but I think there's such a fear of being wrong and you're locked into a set of beliefs that I think many people view as a house of cards, not in the sense that it's fragile, but in the sense that if you take one piece away, the whole thing collapses. <laughs> and so there is a vigilance to protect the citadel of all of your beliefs, which inevitably merges with the ego and the identity. And all of that is wrapped up together. And anything that comes against it, that threatens it, that poses as an alternative point of view, becomes an existential threat to all of those things, your faith, your eternal destination, your sense of self, all of that. So mm. I, I really do feel much less burdened by all of that. What I have not lost includes good things and bad things. I think on the good side of the ledger would be, uh, maybe I'll hit three and one is good, one is in between, and one is probably not great. Um, the good thing I think would just be a sense of moral seriousness. Um, if you've watched Succession, uh, Logan Roy says to his children at one point, you are, I love you, but you are not serious people. <laughs> and that comment could be made of much of our culture in the age of entertainment and distraction. And the way my parents raised me and modeled faith for me, among other things, gave me and all of my siblings, all seven of us, I think a real sense of moral seriousness, which can be a burden at times, but it's also an engine and a fuel Hmm. and and uh and a north star in a lot of ways um i think the the maybe not so good thing that I, i've not lost certainly not entirely is the sense of i'm i don't know how to say it other than maybe i don't like myself self-loathing i think some of the the teachings of especially calvinism really lives themselves in there. And because I'm not a throw out the baby with the bathwater person, I think it's harder for me to move past some of these things. Um, and I've forgotten the one in between, so we'll just go with that. <laughs> you know, this, uh, your thing about fear, I grew up in that. I mean, our, our evangelistic sermons were always threats about hell. And every fall we had a 
prophecy a revival which always became something about the rapture and it could happen tonight you know you better get right with god right now or you know and i had a friend uh who got so tired of the length of the invitations that he would go forward as soon as they started playing the music and receive christ every time (laughs) so he could go outside and play That's a good strategy. Uh, He's an atheist today, (laughs) but uh, he was pretty shrewd at the time. But uh, your, uh, your, you know, this fear-based thing, um, and C.J. Mahaney, I probably connected that Reformed theology. Laura grew up in Christian Reformed Church, and uh, Calvinists have moral seriousness, that's for sure. Uh, But I would say some of that anchoring uh, gets off base. Um, Laura's Laura's got a a good question for you, too. Yeah. Early in the book, you talk about being a border stalker, and you borrow this uh, phrase from Makoto Fujimara, and you talk about this as an advantage because I think you're getting at this idea that by being a border stalker, you become a bridge builder between these communities that you've sort of lived on the outskirts of. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and how you see yourself um, living on the border of this community? Sure. Um, Mako Fujimura has been a very big inspiration for me. Um, he wrote a, a speech, I think it was, back in around 2014 for Lent that he gave at a college. It was called Tears for Lenten Reflections. Hmm. It's one of the first things I remember doing what C.S. Lewis, I think, often talked about, which is coming at people sort of from a, a surprising direction. Um, rather than trying to hit them between the eyes with whatever you're talking about. Uh, Just a beautiful, beautiful speech. But the thing I remember from that speech, actually, is that he talks about how the post-resurrection reality should give us a a sense of relaxed confidence. Mm. And boy, did that resonate. And Mm. boy, does that counter the fear that we're talking about, where everything is on the knife's edge all the time. Um, I think my identification with the border stalker identity started uh, pretty young. I, as a child, was in church all the time, but didn't necessarily, I was probably similar to your friend in in the sense that I didn't have a lot of interest or patience with a lot of what was going on around me. And I just sort of went along with it. I was more interested in sports. Um. And then in college, I became very intense about my faith. Um, But throughout all of those periods of my early life, I I felt, even when I was most invested in church and in the faith, I I still didn't feel entirely uh, comfortable. I didn't feel entirely at home in, in that church environment. I think there is something, you know, to sort of everybody's wired a little bit differently. And I think I'm wired to just ask, you know, questions and, and challenge, you know, pat answers and assumptions. And so a lot of times any kind of closed universe, whether it's religious or not, can be very unwelcoming to uh, those kinds of questions. Um, And then as a journalist, I've never really wanted to be part of the social scene um, very early on in my career, I would go to cocktail parties in upper Northwest DC and I 
kind of reacted against that as well. I just thought, I don't really want to be here in 20 years, um, like in these settings. Um, and I've, and I've, and I think my background kind of makes sets me apart a little bit mm. too in, in the, in the media circle. So Mako's idea really is just what he gets, what she gets from Beowulf is that a border stalker is not at home in any one tribe, but is, is conversant at least, if not fluent in the languages and the ways of thinking of these different groups and can move between them um, to reduce the amount of demonization that happens between groups that don't have a lot of interaction. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that happens when you don't encounter the, the people or the situations that you're afraid of is that your fears become larger than life and, you know, out of proportion with reality by, by many, many, you know, miles. Hmm. Uh, so the border stalker, uh, is an agent of trying to bring understanding and build bridges and reduce caricatures and demonization, I think, first and foremost. Yeah. You know, your, um, your skill as a journalist, uh, I know Bob Smutana pretty well. I've known him. I don't know if you know Bob. Yeah, I do, yeah. Um, I've always found good journalists capable, you know, this is a negative word, they can be lurking, uh, but I don't mean that in a negative. They just kind of are watching stuff and watching, and then they come away and they write something about it. And they saw <laughs> things, they saw things that other people didn't see because they, they didn't, in a sense, didn't embrace it all, but they had a critical thinking skill. Hmm. And um, I found that through your whole book. I mean, I, I see that sort of. Um, it's not a disinterestedness about it. It's a seriousness about it, but at the same time, it's an ability to look at it and say, this was just a bunch of crap, you know, uh, <laughs> and yet I learned something from it. So that's that. I, I see some of that in that border. But uh, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that both uh, Laura and I noticed is that here you grew up in, isn't it, isn't it the churches in Baltimore, uh, real near Washington? Uh, no. DC suburbs, yeah, 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 uh, right there, and you—they were unpolitical, and yeah. um, I did not know my mom and dad were Democrats until they were about eighty-five. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed they were Republicans because they hung out with Baptists and conservative people, but no, they voted Democrat their whole life. I'm interested uh, about uh, in your because of your watching of politics uh, and your ability to kind of stand to the side and watch um, how you see the church and the state relating. And I've been struck by Randy Balmer, uh, who, whose father was my parents' pastor for a while, uh, who once said that uh, Christianity worked, the church works best when it's in the margins rather than in the seat of power. I just wonder if this uh, border stalking and your growing up next to D.C. and not being political and then getting into politics, uh, how you reflect on the relationship of the church and the state. Your comment about standing to decide and observing made me think of the fact that over the last several years since Trump was the nominee for the Republican Party, I have felt more of an obligation to not necessarily, not necessarily be a participant, 
but to find to look for ways that I can do more than just observe. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I and I think that a lot of the time journalists the easy out can be I'm just gonna you know do the horse race coverage or I'm just gonna point out the problem and then leave it you know for somebody yeah. else to solve. I I think journalists because they are pretty pretty up close, pretty conversant with a lot of the the, the issue matter the the issues and the people, you know. Journalists can play a role in, in at least pointing the way to hear the people talking about how to solve these problems. So that's one thing I've been, I've changed the way I've done my work. Uh, in terms of church and state, um, I think it's the Disarming Leviathan Project, um, which is fairly new, that put something on social media. And they said, if Jesus wanted a Christian nation, why didn't he kill Pontius Pilate or something like that, which I thought was an interesting way to think about it. And I have always been uncomfortable going back to the 80s and 90s as a young person with the way that the Christian right, moral majority, um, Christian coalition just didn't have anything to offer that was unique or constructive. It was just all Republican politics dressed up in the flag and the cross. And Mm. I was able to see that pretty early on uh, in my life. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I say in the book, like the the way that Christians and the church can be, you know, politically engaged is to be prophetic and not captive. And, I think, unfortunately, because of the lack of engagement and the lack of discernment from a lot of conservative evangelicals, that's allowed the Republican Party to capture them in an unthinking way much of the time uh, through the issue of abortion, mostly. And, and so their ability to be salt and light in politics and to punish and reward politicians who um, stand on principle, stand for the good of the country, or either or don't, um, and the good of everyone and the common good. I think that ability to really be influenced and solve light for that has been greatly diminished. Um, and fundamentally, the quest for power rather than a faithful witness seems to me at some level to be about a failure of like the the triumph of fear over faith, because it's a lot of, it's just about giving in to the temptations we all have to prioritize our safety, our comfort, our agenda um, at the expense of sort of a sacrificial way of working for everyone's good. It, I have thought recently about this dynamic of uh, martyrdom being one extreme and seduction being the other, just in terms of how we think about um, living a sacrificial faith. Because there are ways I think we can try to so single-mindedly apply ourselves to you know the way of the the cross that it actually kind of leaves behind the need to rely on the Holy Spirit. And can go so far that we hurt ourselves or hurt others and doesn't really require any day-to-day dependence on God um, and ends up not doing that much good anyway. Um, the other the other end is, you know, we just don't care. 
and we just go after money and riches and safety and comfort and all those things without any regard for, you know, the way of Jesus. And I think walking that middle way is the really hard path because um, it's just hard to discern a lot of times and does require some dependence. Um, so I think that's how I would answer that question individually. You know, uh, Laura, you don't know this, but when I wrote to John, he said he was reading my book. Uh, I, I assume I think it was Revelation. And I yeah. think you were reading Hummel as well, right? Uh well, I have both of them. I've read uh, some of yours, and I haven't made it very far through Humble. I, I don't know. This is just an aside. I don't know if either of you are like this, but I have a tendency to take on like ten times more books than I should be, and it, be- <laughs> and it just it produces like a schizophrenia. Like I'm like, oh my god! Like all these books are just always following me. Like I walk around my house. And all these books are like following me around. <laughs> it's so great, so accurate. I have, I, have uh, I think I restrict it to uh, reading for the blog. I only read those books I'm reading for, or the Substack now, and uh, books that I'm reading for whatever I'm writing on. And then at night uh, in bed, I'm reading Francois Mauriac's novels right now, and that yeah. uh, everything else kind of stays to the side. But yeah. Um, I think three categories is a really good program, and I've tried to do that at times, and I, I have gotten off track recently. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, well, oh. you, you have some. Well, I, I think. Well, I'd yeah. like to ask you. Uh, I'll let, let me ask this question because it's close. Okay, what, what was going on with you, with January sixth? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Just a small question, right? Yeah, because you're in the middle of this stuff. You, you were there. What do you mean? What was going on with me? Yeah. What? What? Uh, how did you process it? How did you learn about it? What did you? Were you watching TV like us? Uh, were Were you talking to people who were on the scene? That kind mm. of stuff. It was the craziest moment in my life when it comes to politics. I'm watching this going. You got to be kidding me. The short answer is, Scott, I had a like virtually a nervous breakdown that day. Mm. Yeah. Um, just completely broke down in tears, shaking, just a mess. Um, the long story, and and by God, I don't know how I did this, but I wrote, I don't know, a thousand words that evening and i have no idea how i did that um Mm. i think it was just because it was the only thing i could do to to survive um the longer story is that um i think i was part of a group of people who saw not the severity or the or the craziness of what happened on january 6th coming but um certainly there was a number of us who saw what led up to January 6th coming. Yeah. Because um, it was, it was quite obvious to anyone who was paying attention by midsummer, late summer of 2020, that Trump was just going to keep continuing to concoct lies about voter fraud and stolen elections. He was talking about it all year, ramped it up more and more. And by September, um, I was reporting, others were reporting on 
the mechanisms in three state legislatures where these Republican-controlled legislatures could very easily fix a problem with how mail votes could be counted more quickly. And they absolutely refused to do it. And the clear implication was they wanted that delay to be there uh, so that it would give Trump an Mm. opportunity to claim victory early on election night or the day after or whatever. And meanwhile, they would take three, four, five days to count the mail ballots. This was all known. I wrote thousands of words about it. And then the Atlantic, um, uh, Bart Gelman wrote a piece in late September that had new reporting about um, members of the state legislature in Pennsylvania openly talking about such a plan. Um, I was talking to secretaries of state Republicans, Kentucky, uh, Washington State, Ohio, Frank LaRose in Ohio, uh, Michael Adams in Kentucky. These are Republicans who administer elections in these states about Trump's claims of potential fraud or actual fraud. And they were all very authoritatively saying that the level of fraud he's talking about is not even possible. Hmm. So, um, so, you know, on January 6th, um, I was just mostly on a little bit of cable, but mostly Twitter. And clearly, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, I'm starting to get, I think my, the first real alarm bells that went off were when I saw people, I don't remember which side it was, east or west, but people getting like on the steps and getting violent with the police. And then a couple minutes later, people are actually banging. I'm watching a video from a reporter I know. I'm at home. We can see the Capitol from our house, but I'm at home. And um, the reporters are starting to tweet out video of people banging on the glass. And at that point, I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We know what happened. But in the moment, all bets are off. Like, mm. you really don't know. Like, the thought very consciously in my head was, like, people are about to die, potentially. Yeah. People I know, yeah. people I work with. Yeah. Um, in the building that I have spent many, many hours in that is a symbol of our democracy, one of the greatest buildings in the world, as far as I'm concerned, architecturally and for what it stands for. So... You know, as the building was overrun, I'm texting lots of people. I'm texting people with governor's offices. You know, where's the guard? Where's the military? And, um, yeah, I just remember early that morning, I think I think for probably weeks, I just had trouble. I would wake up with just the sense of dread hmm. and... Um, just was very, I, my, I was very sweaty. Like I would wake up with sweaty hands, sweaty feet, just a lot of anxiety. So, yeah. Well, you're uh, in testimony, your forthrightness about Trump is deeply appreciated. Uh, and and I, I know that you're an observer and I know that you know that uh, in some sense, it's just the facts, ma'am. You know, you're just supposed to describe, but... Uh, at times, you ha- you have to come forward, and I think you do it in a prophetic and strong way. But I, and I, 
and I think it's, you know, I'm not going to say it's uh, um, balanced because there is no need to be balanced about about the nonsense that Trump has gotten uh, the nation into. So I really appreciated that. And I know Laura did as well. So, yeah, I think. Well, thank I, you. I Can I just yeah. say something? I mean, yeah. it's yeah. not we're not talking about issues here. Yeah. We're talking about the entire structure that allows these issues to be litigated and discussed and worked on in a system where freedom of speech and freedom of conscience and freedom of association and all of these fundamental rights are, are flowing, you know, mm. and, and enabling this, this process to happen. Um, I am not a bystander when it comes to the importance of democracy. And I know that word democracy has actually become almost like deconstruction. It's become a partisan term and that's not good. Um, but I care about the rights of all Americans to seek redress with their government. And from the get go, Trump clearly did not give two craps about that. And he made that very clear from the beginning. And then he delivered on that promise after the 2020 election. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I'm thinking about, um, charismatic leaders and the impact that they have on people. You also talk about charismatic leaders within the church that similarly, um, have big personalities, you said, which they use to compensate for their lack of training, expertise, and experience um, because they have more certainty than anything. Um, And I'm thinking about sort of the parallels in some ways um, and that these charismatic leaders are having a big impact. And so they kind of feel like none of the none of the rest of it matters the the rule of law the structure the history the tradition the things that have made up um the church for thousands of years um pales in comparison with the the impact that they're having and in in the church um it's because of the sense of the the apocalypse apocalypse is imminent um therefore because the need is so great you know, that we can kind of put some of these things to the side. And then you go on and you talk about um, your parents being concerned about you going to college um, and some of your influences. And you said that your religious upbringing had given you a lots of training in how to feel and what to believe, but very little in how to think. Um, and I think a lot of churches treat intellectual questions as a dangerous lack of faith. So why is it important for Christians to take questions seriously? And when we're talking about January 6th and some of the political implications of this, um, why should Christians take critical thinking and asking questions and sometimes pushing back against their leaders? Um, why is this important? Why do we need to do a better job disciple, being discipled in this process of thinking critically? Uh, there are many things you could say about this from a pragmatic outcomes-based point of view, but from a principle point of view, or pr- from, the, from the basis of principle or even theology or just Jesus' teaching, it's very simple. You know, Christ tells us to love God with all of our mind. So I don't really think we have to talk 
that much longer <laughs> about why critical thinking is important. Um, but you know, your comment about um, certainty, personality, it made me think of the Yates line in the second his poem, The Second Coming, which I had to look up. I'm not quoting from memory, but I'm sure you know it. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And I would just like to say a word for the importance of passionate intensity um, in support of complexity and not rushing to answers. I think you could sum it up in one word maybe as moderation. Mm. That word itself gets a bad rap as weak or squishy uh, or even relativistic. And uh, there is some scholarly work being done on on this topic by a professor at Indiana University called, he has a, uh, a European name, maybe Eastern European, uh, so I can't, Aurelian, Aurelian Kreishu or something. But he, he, book, he wrote a book called The Faces of Moderation where he's arguing that in fact, rather than being weak, political moderation requires incredible strength hmm. and courage because it's easy to be sure of yourself and to have a quick answer. Uh, it's hard to do what William Buckley talked about where he said, you know, we should stand athwart a history yelling stop. That's not necessarily always what I'm talking about here, but a lot of times the border stalker, quite frankly, the Christian's job is to stand in front of the rush to judgment or the rush to condemn or the rush to punish and to say, we need to slow down and, and we need to love God with our mind and love our neighbor as ourself. And um, yeah. You know, the I think the most moving scene in your wonderful book, Testimony, you were on a beach with your daughter, and um, I think you're, I think if I remember it right now, you were pondering uh, what you what you believe now, and what you want to pass on to your children uh, in the faith. Can you uh, re-describe that scene for us? Sure. Yeah, this was uh, on vacation on the coast in the Northeast. Uh, it was my daughter's birthday. Took her out to breakfast. And, um, she would, you know, she was really enjoying spending time with me and we were taking a walk. It was, so I, you know, I just had a lot on my mind at that time about how much of this, you know, apocalypse, um, which really means revelation, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, over the last couple of years, um, how much of this revelation to me about Christianity meant that, you know, a lot of it was, was bogus. So, yeah, I, you just think about like, I don't want to, I, I can't honestly look my kid in the eye and tell them things that I can't really say to myself that I believe. So that was kind of the internal thought process. Um, and I looked out, the water and the trees and the sky. And I just thought, I don't, I don't really have trouble believing that there's a, a force 
behind all this, I have the gift of faith to believe that God exists. After that, um, I'm, I'm walking the road of Christianity because it's the, the, the faith I've been given. But I'm willing to hold a lot of it with an open hand and, uh, and pursue truth and pursue reality um, without a lot of – I think the best way to put it is without a lot of commitments to defending that citadel of certainty and mm. ego – um, cause that is what it boils down to a lot of the time. And people will often try to jujitsu themselves into saying, well, actually we're showing courage and steadfastness by showing no compromise by taking a stand. And I think that's the easy way out. I think people sometimes back themselves into a corner out of wanting to feel a sense of courage uh, but I think the way of difficulty is the way of really saying, I'm not going to repeat things that I don't know that I, that I can't say I believe within reason. Like, I think, I, I think there's room to debate all that when it comes to raising kids and I'm not going to take an absolute, absolute stand on that at all. Uh, I understand there's a lot of nuance to that. Well, that was good. Good. Thank you. I think um, it's really interesting because as I'm listening to you talk, these themes of border stalking, of being on the edge of things, evaluating and recognizing that the truth is often more nuanced than maybe it appears at first. Um, another quote that I thought yeah. was great. You talk about journalism has made you more of a Christian and a better Christian. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there are probably so many people who would be shocked by that statement. But I think it's true. I think that that process of of investigating, of learning, of talking to people from a wide variety of backgrounds has probably made you a better Christian because of these elements of nuance and the willingness to invite a little uncertainty and to depend on the Holy Spirit has probably made you a better Christian. And I think that we could benefit from that. So I really appreciated that about the book. So thank you for spending some time with us. And um, I would encourage our listeners to consider picking up the book Testimony, because I think there's a lot in there that will resonate with people um, thinking about their own faith experience and um, how they interact with culture. So those are great takeaways. So John, thank you for being with us. And for our listeners, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much.